let me ask you, let's talk about the best and the worst Christmas songs ever. Somebody raise your hand and tell me one of the worst Christmas songs you can think of. Give me, give me, someone give me a worst Christmas song right here. I can hear you. Santa baby. Oh, that's terrible. Right back here. Grandma got run over by a reindeer right here. Yeah, we got another one for there. What we got here? Little drum. Whoa, them's fighting words. Oh, all right. I put down two of the worst Christmas songs, and they were both mentioned. Grandma got run over by a reindeer is a terrible song. It's tragic. It is tragic. And I'm sorry, but that grandpa is a jerk. Like, literally, he starts singing with the, that's terrible. Like, terrible song. And uh, the worst Christmas song, Santa Baby. Like, I, I, okay, nobody should call me, nobody should be calling Santa Baby except for Mrs. Claus. Like, that's just, that's the way it should be. And I'm, I don't think anybody wants a sable under the tree. Now, I say that, and I imagine one of you drove a sable out in the parking lot today, and I'm going to feel really bad saying that, but nobody wants a sable under the tree, right? All right, let's do this. Best Christmas song. Someone give me a best Christmas song. Right there. Little drummer boy. We got some competition. (laughs) Should we do a vote? We won't do that. That may not be good. Uh, Another, give me another favorite, best Christmas song. Mary, did you know? All right, one more, one more. Right there. Silent Night. All right, I like what you guys came up with. I put down two. (laughs) I'm sorry, Emma, I did put down Little Drummer Boy. (laughs) I love the picture of the little boy saying, man, what can I give to Jesus? I'll just give my best to him. I love that. And uh, I I love, you know, joy to the world is kind of like the reason why we celebrate Christmas. It should be one of those that we throw in. And uh, a couple favorite songs, but I was thinking about this specific song this week. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Are you familiar with that song? It's a great song. Uh, again, it highlights what makes Christmas special. It says it's the most wonderful time of the year. There'll be parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting, and caroling out in the snow. There'll be scary ghost stories and tales uh, of glories of Christmases long, long ago. There'll be much mistletoeing, and all the husbands said amen. There'll be much mistletoeing, hearts will be glowing. When what? When loved ones are near. That is what makes Christmas special. It's not the presence under the tree. It is the presence of people that we love. That makes all the difference in the world. And while most of us would say Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year, what about for those that it's not? What about for those that are lonely, that are grieving, that are hurting and sick? Again, we think about all these gatherings we're going to have together. What about those who are dealing with broken relationships? What about those who are depressed and cut off because they're depressed? What about people who are disappointed with where things have gone because things haven't turned out the way that they anticipated? See, the reality is we gather together and we have a lot of fun and we do some stuff together, but there are people all around us, in our families, in our church, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, there are people all around us who are struggling. 
And as we, we get to Christmas time and we think about the gifts we're going to give, I, I think the question is, what do we give to those people who are struggling? What can we give that would share hope and joy with them? Well, this month we're having some conversations on, on, on giving presents rather than presents. Uh, kind of this idea uh, that the best thing we can give to uh, each other is not necessarily a gift under the tree, but it's actually our presence investing in our relationships with one another. In fact, this is ultimately what Christmas is all about, about God's presence with us. Uh, uh, the, the verse that we've been talking about, this that we're going to talk about this month, John 1.14, says the word of God became flesh and he dwelt among us. Again, we've got that famous Christmas prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, the virgin shall give birth and she shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. That is what it's about. In fact, we shared this last week, and so I'm going to share this out today. If you have not picked one of these books up, uh, the church has bought these books as a gift to you. Uh, it's called The Greatest Presence of All, and uh, really it focuses on, on, on the names of God and how they help us to understand God's presence with us. And the best thing about this book, uh, we're giving one, of, one to each family, and so encourage you to pick one up. But the best thing about this book is this book was written by our, our one and only Jim Herring. And so we're super excited to be able to support Jim. And so I encourage you, if you have not picked one of these up, they're on the resource table out there. And i uh, love for you to have that as a way to grow closer to Christ and, and his presence in your life. But today we're going to do a little different. Today we're going to look at the, a story from the book of Job. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Job, it is a unique book. And this story we're going to look at is practical because it goes beyond just this Christmas season. It is something that is incredibly important for us to understand. And that's what we're going to call the gift of presence. That when people are hurting, when people are struggling and suffering and grieving, whatever it happens to be, sometimes the best thing we can do is simply give our presence. Not give a gift, not give a word of wisdom, not quote scripture, but sometimes the most powerful thing that we can do is simply be present with people who are struggling. So Job, if you are not familiar with the book, it is so unique because it uh, starts out with Satan comes up to God and they have a conversation and God's like, hey, have you heard of my boy Job? Job, man, he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a man of integrity. He fears me. He turns from evil. In fact, God says this about Job. There is no one like him on all the earth. And so Satan says, well, the only reason, God, that the only reason Job fears you and follows you is because you've blessed him. And so God says, okay, Satan, I give you permission. You can take his blessing away. Just do not touch Job himself. So Satan leaves, and in a matter of hours, Job loses all of his wealth, loses his entire business, loses all of his staff. And on top of that, through a tragic accident, all 10 of his children die in a moment. <laughs> What's Job going to do? Through it all, Job never sins and does not blame God for any of his suffering. And then we get to chapter 2, and Satan comes up to, to God again. He's like, hey, God, you know why Job still fears you? He says, listen, a man will give up everything for his life. So God says, okay, Job. Or he says, okay, Satan, you can do whatever you want to Job, just don't take his life. So Satan leaves and causes boils 
to, to come over all over Job's body. If you could think of, uh, uh, think of open sores from top to bottom, blisters from head to toe. And is, in fact, Job is suffering so bad that the scripture says he goes to essentially the dump. He goes to the trash heap and he takes a piece of broken pottery, some, something out of the trash, and starts scratching his wounds with it because of how miserable he is. Can you imagine that amount of suffering? And if that wasn't worse enough, Job's wife says to him, Job, are you still holding your integrity? All these bad things have happened to you? And she says, why don't you just curse God and die? Yet Job chapter 2 verse 10 says, through all of this, Job did not sin. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Job, you know that the rest of the book of Job is these long drawn out stories, long drawn out speeches. You've got Job's three friends who come and try and help Job. They come with these long speeches trying for them to explain to Job where all these bad things are happening. They're trying to use their wisdom and their theology essentially to say, listen, Job, you're suffering because God is punishing you because you've got some unknown sin that you need to repent of. And until you repent, you're going to continue to suffer. And we know it's not a very good book. His friends are not very good people. In fact, in chapter 16, Job actually says, you guys are the worst comforters. You guys are terrible. That's not the way to comfort someone when they're hurting and struggling and grieving. But in Job chapter 2, there's three little verses. Before these guys ever open their mouths, before these friends give any speeches, there are three little verses that might be some of the most beautiful and comforting verses in the entire scriptures that give us profound insight as to what the gift of presence actually looks like on how we can comfort those who are struggling or hurting or suffering or whatever it happens to be. So this morning, we're going to talk about giving the gift of, of uh, uh, presence. And the first thing we see in these couple of verses is his friends take notice of Job's suffering and they take initiative to do something. Here's what it said in verse 11. When Job's three friends heard all the evil that had come upon Job, they came each from his own place. I want you to notice that the text calls what happened to Job, he calls it evil. He says, I want you to notice the evil that has happened there. Now, we don't often think uh, 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 in those terms. We, we, we think, well, suffering is a part of life. Grieving, death, we just, it's a part of life. You just can't, you know, it's just a consequence of sin. And in a general sense, yes, uh, any suffering we go through is a cons consequence of sin. But I love the first two chapters of Job because it gives us insight to what's happening behind the scene. That the suffering, the death, the difficulty, there is an enemy behind it whose goal is to still kill and destroy us as believers. In fact, Ephesians 6 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over present darkness and spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Yeah, what's happening to Eve? What's happening to Job? Let's just acknowledge this is evil. There's an enemy who is seeking to, to kill, destroy, and devour. And when we see people who are struggling, it's not just think, oh, of course they are, they're sinners. No, let's actually recognize there's an enemy who is seeking to destroy everything around us. 
back in Job 2, verse 1. It says, so they made an appointment together to come and show sympathy and comfort him. What happened is Job's three friends, they hear that Job is suffering. And what do they do? They get on FaceTime together, and they're like, we got to do something. Let's go and see him. Let's go and visit him. Let's, let's take the initiative to go see him. I want you to, to notice, though, that Job never asked them to come. It's not like Job was like, hey, guys, I'm struggling. I need you. No, they, they took the initiative. See, sometimes what happens is when we see someone who is struggling, and we do this because it makes us feel good. We see someone who's grieving or struggling. We're like, hey, let me know if there's anything I can do for you. And it makes us feel good. Like, like, oh, yeah, it makes me, let me know if there's anything I can do. But here's the thing. The person who is struggling, they're not going to ask. They're they're not going to ask. Why? Because they don't want to impose on somebody else. Oftentimes, that person can't think clearly enough to know what they need or let alone to know they need to ask. Oftentimes, they don't have the, the emotional energy to actually put out the call. And here's the thing that drives me, that's just so crazy to me. It's when we say that, hey, let me know if there's anything I can do for you. Do you realize that puts the burden on them to organize their own help? They're grieving, they're dealing with whatever suffering they've got, and now they've got to also deal with the burden of, man, this person wants to help me. How am I going to figure this out? No, friends, in this story, in Job, They notice Job's suffering, and they decide to take the initiative. They decided, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to go and help. Let me ask you, do you notice the people that are struggling around you? Do you notice the people that are in a dark season, that are lonely, that are depressed? I know the problem is we're just so busy. We have our own cares, our own concerns, our own things going on. But let's get a little deeper than that. Let's just be honest. At times, sometimes it not it easier not to notice? Isn't it easier not to notice that person struggling because guess what? That's going to eat into my time. That's going to eat into whatever it happens to be. Because aren't we a little bit selfish? Oh, I don't want to wade into that mess right now because I don't want to get dragged down into it. No, I love this because his friends, they noticed it. And they took initiative. That's the first step. The second step is they identify with Job. It says in verse 12, when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. Again, this is what happens when people are suffering. It has an impact on their uh, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual health. And you can see it in a person. And so when they saw him, they raised their voices and they wept. And they tore their robes, and they sprinkled dust on their heads towards the heavens. See, we could call this, they're sympathizing with him. We could call this, they're they're empathizing with him. But really, it goes much deeper than that. They're actually identifying with him. See, what to identify means? Identify means to uh, take one's suffering on yourself. When you identify with somebody, you see where they're at, and you're like, man, I'm going to take some of what you're going through, and I'm going to put myself in there, and I'm going I'm to take some of that on myself. That's what Job's friends are doing. They're taking this posture of grief. Job, you tore your robes in grief? We're going to tear our robes. Job, you sprinkled dust on your head? So am I. Job, I don't know if Job's still sitting in the dump, but I imagine if he is, I bet his friends are there as well. 
Again, they're identifying with him. See, what often happens for us is when we see someone who is struggling or whatever it happens to be, let's just be honest. Like, sometimes it's hard to know what to do. What am I supposed to do? I don't know what to do. I don't know how to help them. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. You know, Scripture gives us the answer. Scripture tells us what to do when somebody is struggling. Romans 12 says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. I've heard this term uh, described as tracking. And here's what it means. Like, like when, you've got, when you've got a family member and you track with them and you're like, man, my, my family member, they're grieving. Man, I, I track, I see that, they're grieving. Guess what you do? You grieve with them, right? You end up looking and you're like, man, I've got a coworker, man, I, and I'm tracking my coworker and they're celebrating something. I don't, they're, they're excited. Guess what you do? You celebrate with them. You got a friend at church and you see them and you're like, you're tracking with them. And I'm like, man, they're, they're, praying for, they're praying for a miracle. Guess what you do? You add your amens and you, you pray for a miracle with them. This is what it means for us to identify with somebody. Where you're at, I'm going to join you where, you're at, where you are. See, we have this idea that sometimes we're supposed to fix the problem we're supposed to explain what's happening. We're supposed to whatever it happens to be. That's not our job. Our job's not to answer why this is happening. It's not to judge them. No, our, our job is simply to identify with them. I see you. I'm identifying with you. I'm joining you. And that is so powerful. In fact, there's a story about Queen Victoria years ago. She heard about a commoner who lost her baby. And the queen was moved with such sympathy that she felt she must do something about it. She goes and visits this lady's house and is there for a little bit and then leaves. And as she leaves, this lady is encouraged. The neighbor's like, whoa, what happened? Neighbor asks the lady, he's like, man, what did the queen say to you that made all the difference for you? Like, well, the queen said nothing. She simply put her hands on mine and we simply wept together. That is what it looks like for us to identify with somebody who's struggling. You don't have to solve the problem. You don't have to answer why. You don't have to have a word of wisdom. You simply identify and say, I'm with you. Let's cry together. Let's weep together. Let's grieve together. Let's be angry together. Let's celebrate together, whatever it happens to be. Number one, we've got to notice and take initiative. Number two, we've got to identify with them. And number three, we actually have to give our presence. Verse 13 says, They sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. This is kind of this continuation of identifying with him. They're simply, they're present with him. For seven days and seven nights. Now I imagine, I imagine they're probably helping make some food. They're probably making the coffee. They're probably doing a little bit of cleanup. I don't know. But for seven days, they were present. And do you notice what it said they weren't doing? It said they weren't talking. They weren't trying to fix everything. They weren't throwing out these pious Bible verses trying to make them feel better. Now, I'll admit, like, we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture to meet every need. That is 100% true. But Proverbs talks about... Uh, uh, the encouragement that comes from the timely use of Scripture. Proverbs 25, 11 says, A well-timed word 
is like apples made in gold and silver settings is a well-timed word. See, throwing Bible verses out isn't always the answer. People know the truth, but sometimes they struggle in just believing it. I mean, I'll be honest, like in times when I've made a mess of a situation, anybody ever done that? I've made plenty of those. When I'm, when I'm struggling, when I'm, when I'm depressed, like I don't need someone to tell me, hey, you screwed up. I don't need someone to tell me, hey, you need to have more faith. I already know those things. You know what I need? I need someone to come and say, man, I'm with you. I'm going to grieve with you. Yeah, this sucks. I'm sorry you're having to go through this. I don't need to be told, oh, you need to believe better. You need to get out. I just need someone to be and identify with me. And all of a sudden, man, there's encouragement that comes from just, I'm with you. It does suck. I'm sorry you're in this. People suffering, they need not the truth. They do need the truth of Scripture demonstrated through your life as you give them your presence. They need the truth of Scripture demonstrated through your life as you simply are present with them in their struggling. You know what that means? That means when somebody's struggling and suffering and grieving and whatever it happens to be, you don't have to have an answer. You don't have to say anything profound. You don't have to say anything at all. In fact, I was thinking about this this morning. I've been in Christian leadership now for, for, for almost 20 years. Almost 20 years. <laughs> People rarely remember what I say. They will always remember my presence. They'll always remember how it felt when I showed up. See, here, here, here's, here's something I'd love for us to hear. We, don't, we can't eliminate sorrow. We can't eliminate sorrow. We simply share it. And it's when we share that sorrow, that is how we begin to lighten the load for the other person. In fact, there's a pastor named Joe Bailey, and he wrote a book called uh, The Last Things We Talk About. And it was a book written about his experience from him and his wife. Him and his wife, they buried three kids. Can you imagine? I can't imagine one. They buried three kids. Their uh, first child, 18 days old, had surgery, never woke up from the surgery. Second child, five years old, diagnosed with leukemia and died. Third child, 18 years old, went sledding and died from an accident. <laughs> I can't imagine that suffering. And this is, this is what Joe said. He said, I was torn with grief. And someone came and they talked to me about God's dealings, about why this was happening, about there being hope beyond the grave. They talked constantly of things I already knew. I was unmoved and I wished that he would go away. And finally he did. And then another man came and sat beside me for an hour or more. He listened when I said something, he answered briefly, he prayed simply, and he left. I was moved, I was comforted, and I was desperate for him to stay. I think that's the power of presence, of not having to solve the problem and fix anything and provide, oh, let me give the right thing to say. It's simply us being present. That is the power of presence. Not having answers, not having wisdom, but just saying, I notice you, I care with you, I'm here with you. No, I'll be honest, like, in the book of Job, if it ended right here, this would be the greatest book ever written. 
(laughs) But that's not how it goes. Job's friends, they couldn't resist the temptation to open their mouths, to judge Job, to explain why everything is happening, to try and solve things, to make things better, to use their theology and their wisdom. You know what's the result of what happens to Job's friends because of all their speeches? Job 42, God actually condemns his friends and instructs them to repent and pray and have Job pray for them because God says, I'm not going to listen to your prayers. Reality is we live in a broken, fallen world. And our enemy is a roaring lion seeking to devour, to kill, to destroy. He'll give us grief and ongoing sin and depression and addiction and struggles with money and relationships and health and and relationships that break and fail and people that let us down. Man, his goal is to to allow these things into people's lives so that we're distracted, so we're, we're diverted from God. Listen, as a people of God, our job is to show his love, to show his mercy. And listen, the best and most powerful thing that we can give to those who are struggling, it's not a gift under the tree, It's not the right word. It's not an answer. The best thing that we can give to people who are struggling is simply our presence. It is a gift of comfort, of simply saying, I notice you. I'm going to take some initiative here. I'm going to come with you. I'm going to sympathize with you, and I'm going to simply be present so you are not alone. In fact, as Christians, you know why we can love like this? You know why we can comfort people. You know why we can be present with people just like this? Because God is our comforter. In fact, listen to how uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 describes God. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be God our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. You know what that means? That means that he is the, the giver and the dispenser of mercy. His mercies are new each morning. That is who he is. And listen to this. He says, the God of all comfort. He comforts us in our affliction so that we can comfort those in their affliction through the comfort we have received ourselves from God. Second Corinthians calls God our comforter. How many of us have been through hardship and affliction and death and sorrow and depression and addiction and suffering and challenges? And we've seen God show up in very real ways to be our comforter. In fact, he proved his comfort for us by suffering in our place for our sin. He suffered for us so sin and Satan and death and hell no longer has a hold on us. Right? And how did God choose to to give us his comfort? He chose to give us his comfort simply through his presence. I mean, think about the promises from Scripture. The promises are from Scripture that says there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from his love. Nothing in all creation. He says, I will never leave you nor abandon you. It's his presence. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? 
Because of his presence, he is with us. See, the fact is, we are not alone. We have God with us, his presence with us. And what I've learned (laughs) is we can face anything when we're not alone. We can face anything when we're not alone. Because of that comfort that God has given to us, we then are able to comfort others. That we become the same dispensers of grace and mercy and comfort that we've received from God that we give to others. And when we comfort, we don't have to, you know, we don't have to have answers and explanations. We don't have to have words of wisdom or, or these great gifts that are going to change everything. No, simply we give our presence. We simply say, I'm with you. You're not alone. You want to cry? We'll cry. You want to laugh? We'll laugh. You want to mourn? We'll mourn. You want to scream in anger? We'll scream in anger together. But I'm with you. We'll get through this together. That is the gift of presence. That will change lives. Hmm. Here we are in the midst of the most wonderful time of the year. And we all have these things. We've got parties for hosting and marshmallows for toasting and caroling out on the snow. We've got all these things planned. And what I want you to do this morning is I want you to stop for a moment. I want you to put all those fun things aside for just a moment. Would you stop and think? Would you stop and notice the people around you? who are struggling? Do you notice the people who are grieving? You know, I always say with grieving, everybody's present for the first week until the funeral. And then they go on with their life. And guess what? The person who's lost somebody, that grieving goes on and on and on and on. Will you notice a person who is alone? You notice a person who's depressed? Do you notice a person who's battling addiction and having an impact in their life? Notice a person who is suffering from sickness and disease. Again, think about your workplace. Think about your family. Think about our church. Think about your neighborhood. Think of the stories that you've heard from this past year. Think about the events that people have been through. Can you think of people right now? Can you notice their suffering and their struggling? Will you notice the people that are around you? And let me ask you this. When you notice them, would you notice them without judging them? Yes, maybe they need to move on. Yes, yes, maybe they need more faith. Yes, maybe they're a jerk and that's why they're all alone. But sympathy means first we join with the tears before we ever judge the tears. There can be a a time for hard conversations, but those hard conversations are best earned through loving sympathy and presence and relationship rather than, let me tell you, you need to just get over it. 
So will you notice the people struggling around you this year? Who's that person for you right now? It's come to your mind. Second question is, how are you going to give them your presence? What are you going to do to show up? Is it going to be awkward? For some of us, it's really awkward. I imagine for Job's friends, it would have been really awkward for them to have to tear the robe and throw ash on their head. But it was worth it. So how are you going to give your presence this Christmas to that person? Maybe that means you invite them into your Christmas celebration. Hey, we're doing this. Come on over and come celebrate with us. Maybe you're going to bake cookies and knock on their doorstep and say, hey, I brought this for you. I want to come and, and eat some cookies with you because we're going to eat cookies anyway, so let's do it together. Maybe it's you saying, I'm going to come, I'm going to shovel your snow, I'm going to clean your kitchen, I'm going to do something practical for you, but this isn't a way I'm going to show up. In fact, <laughs> I heard uh, some friends, and, and I love this story. They, they met some people who uh, were new to Yakima, been in Yakima for a couple of months, haven't really gotten well connected, their families are not here. And this family was here for Christmas, and they're like, man, we got nothing to do. Our families are in California. We're here. We can't go home. And so these friends of ours invited them and said, hey, why don't we do, Christmas? Why don't we do Thanksgiving together? Come on over. We'll have Christmas together. And that was so meaningful. That was so meaningful just to be noticed, just to say, hey, you don't have a place to go. Come here. Let's do this together. It was simple, but it was so very profound of saying, hey, here's how I'm going to give you presents. You know, uh, Sunday night uh, at youth group, we've been walking through the book of 1 John with the teenagers. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I've really appreciated about where these kids have been learning is we've been talking about, like, like church is a place that we say we belong together. That's one of our family values. Like, like you come to Restoration Church, listen, you belong here. We're a family, right? That's what, that's what church is. Church is a family. Now, here's the thing, though. We can claim we're family, and we can claim we love each other. But what these kids are learning, words aren't enough. You can't just say it. No, we actually have to have deeds that match our words. We claim to love one another. And 1 John says, if we don't have deeds that back it up, then we are liars, and the love of God is not actually within us. So here we are at church. We claim to love each other. We claim to be family. We claim to belong together. The question is, are you going to notice the people around you? In fact, again, we talk about giving our presence this Christmas. Let me just, let me just get this out. What's your excuse? What's your excuse for not giving your presence to somebody? What's holding you back. See, I'm pretty sure we're called to live by faith. And faith means that we actually have to trust God, which means we have to do things that are not easy for us, that make us uncomfortable, that we require something of us. So what's your excuse? Are you willing to step out by faith to say, man, I see this person who's struggling and I'm going to give them the gift of presence. 
And I believe God's going to use it to make a difference. Let me uh, close with a story. There was a story about a 15-year-old boy who, as many 15-year-old boys, had all the potential in the world in front of him. A lifetime. Man, we're going to do all these things. We're going to change the world. All these things in front of him. Until suddenly, he got sick. Had this fever that lasted for several days. Had these flu-like symptoms that just hung around and hung around. Finally, his parents took him into the hospital. They got a devastating diagnosis. Leukemia. The doctors were very frank about the diagnosis. They said it's not good. We're going to have to fight hard with chemotherapy. Talking through all the horrible side effects that are going to make the boy miserable that are not guaranteed to heal this boy in the And anyways, can you imagine that boy? (laughs) Devastated. Man, the world in front of him, all those plans, everything that he wanted to do, depressed. His aunt decided to send the boy some flowers, so she called the local flower shop, told the clerk, hey, this is what I want for my nephew who's got diagnosed with uh, leukemia. And that day, those flowers were delivered. They were beautiful. Beautiful flowers delivered to the hotel room. And the boy's looking at the flowers, and he sees two cards. He sees a little card, and this is, this is from Aunt. That's awesome, so sweet of her. But there were, there's a second card underneath it. The card said, my name is Laura Bradley. I work at the flower shop. I took your aunt's order. I had leukemia when I was seven years old. I'm 22 now. My heart goes out to you. Good luck. (laughs) That little boy, that young boy, he had doctors with (laughs) more degrees and a thermometer hovering all around him. We're talking about millions and millions of dollars of medical equipment and research available to him at the hospital. And those things did nothing for his soul. It wasn't until a sales clerk making minimum wage noticed him, took initiative, and cared that gave that boy a little bit of hope and the will to carry on. Can you imagine the influence that we can make on the people around us? If we allow the love of God, the comfort of God to flow through us that God might just use our love, our comfort, our care, our presence to give someone else the hope and the will to carry on.